0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we're chatting with Chloe Benjamin about her book, The Immortalists, which we covered on The Stacks Book Club. There are no spoilers in this episode, so you can feel free to listen even if you have not read the book yet. Remember, you can find everything we talk about on today's episode by clicking the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to the social media accounts of The Stacks and our guests. If you like this show and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. Join us on Patreon. You earn perks like our virtual book club and your contribution helps to keep The Stacks up and running. It's a great way to connect with other listeners and personally, it means a whole lot to me. So head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Lastly, and perhaps most easily, and certainly the most free, you can subscribe to the stacks and you can leave us a rating and a review. It's so easy, it almost seems like it wouldn't matter, but it does. It really, really does. All right, let's get to it. My spoiler free conversation with Chloe Benjamin about the Immortalists. All right, everybody. I am here today with author Chloe Benjamin. Her book, The Immortalists, is a Stacks book club pick from October. Chloe, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited you're here. Okay. So in the interest of full disclosure, we're recording this episode after the episode of The Immortalists came out. So for those of you who are listening and listen in real time, you've already heard my conversation with Jenna about this book, but we're going to treat this episode like we would normally treat a Short Stacks episode, which is we're not going to spoil. We're going to talk about the book and a lot about Chloe's process. So I just wanted to give everybody that heads up. And now let's talk about the book. Chloe, in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell us about The Immortalists? Yes.
1: So, uh, you did a really good nutshell on the stacks episode with Jenna. I was okay. very impressed. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my nutshell is, um, the novel follows four siblings growing up in the sixties on the lower East side in New York, who hear of the arrival of a mysterious woman who claims to be able to tell anyone the date that they will die. And they go to see this woman and they receive what she claims are their prophecies. And then the book follows them individually over the course of their lives and looks at whether the prophecies come true. And if so, is it fate, chance, expectation, et cetera?
0: Amazing. You're much better than me. I feel like you've done Not this before. Not
1: at all. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, my poor husband, like if I'm out with him somewhere and anybody's like, what's your book about? He's like, it follows for us. So like <laughs>
0: I love that. Where did the idea for the book come from? And why did you feel compelled to tell this story?
1: So I always wish I had a better answer for where the idea came from. Like, you know, if I could remember that light bulb moment, um, I know it was in 2013 that I started working on this book and I know that the initial idea was really that concept that four siblings go to see this person. And then the book follows them over their lifetimes. And I knew that I wanted, um, the youngest, I don't think that this is too spoilery because it comes, you know, you learn about the professions of the siblings, maybe on the back of the book,
0: um,
1: that I wanted the youngest sibling to be a dancer. And I knew that I wanted the second youngest to be a female magician. Um, but I think You know, psychologically, where did the book come from? It just has to do with my lifelong discomfort with uncertainty, my desire to know things in order to protect myself. But really, you know, I'm not sure how helpful um, knowledge always is. So I think the book came from that desire to explore the, the, benefits, but also the perils of seeking knowledge about something that we're kind of not supposed to know.
0: Okay. You said something that I want to ask about, but I also want to ask about what you just said. So let's try to remember both things. The first one is, as far as the siblings knowing that you wanted the youngest to be a dancer and the second youngest to be a female magician, why?
1: So I was a dancer and I've always wanted to incorporate dance ballet specifically into something that I Right. I started a really terrible ballet novel, like years ago that never went anywhere. Um, but I never really expected necessarily that I would do it through male dancers. Um, but I will say that, so I grew up in San Francisco and, um, Even though Simon seems like somebody that I would have nothing in common with, I I think I actually share a lot of DNA with that section. I'm certainly not a gay man, and so I would never want to claim to have had that experience. But I did grow up with gay parents, and the gay community is really important to me. Um, And I grew up, as I said, in San Francisco as a ballet dancer. And so the school that Simon goes to is like... I don't usually just import things wholesale from my life, but like that's my, that was my school. That was where I spent almost every day. And they actually um, were known for having a really excellent group of male dancers and an excellent program for male dancers. Um, So if, who knows, if that hadn't been the case and if I hadn't grown up at a ballet school that had so many male dancers, because as you can imagine, they're often pretty few and far between, Um, maybe I wouldn't have felt as confident writing from the perspective of a male dancer, but, um, but that's where that came from. And it was just so much fun because as you can imagine, this book took so much research that Mm -hmm. to have anything that I knew, like the back of my hand was just like, thank you, God.
0: Right. I'm also from the Bay area and I also grew up as a dancer. Oh, yeah. I'm from Oakland. Oakland. Oh my God. Did you, what, what type of dance? So I did ballet and I was, did mostly jazz as they say. I don't even think uh-huh. that's a dance anymore. And then tap, <laughs> I was a tapper and I did hip hop. Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh my God. That's so funny. That's How nice. cool. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. I love it. And then what about the magician part? How did you know oh, that?
1: That I have no idea. That was just like a stroke of inspiration oh, that okay. just th- say like, thank you God for, um, I, <laughs> I loved hearing you and Jenna talk about magic. Um, I I think what drew me to that as a profession for her is not just the magic, but also the idea of being a performing artist, because sure. as I said, I was a dancer, but I also... Um, was did a lot of acting as a kind of young person through college. My mom is a stage actor, and now the only way that I really perform is through events um, mm. when I read my work. But I miss and love the performing arts so much, and so just this idea of um, of this woman who's developing a you know, one woman show in a male dominated field was really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Circling back to what you said earlier about the unknown and uncertainty and finding out more information and if that's helpful or not. One of the big questions that we had on the episode, and I'm going to try to do this without spoiling. So protect your book at all costs. Did you, as the author of your book, know In your heart or your mind, if it was fate or personal choice, or did you have a clear point of view on that?
1: So, you guys were exactly right in what you thought I would say, which is no. (laughs) (laughs) And um, actually, I can't remember which one of you said, like, but how could an author write the book without knowing? And I actually see it the opposite way. I feel like, how could I have written a book that asks these questions if I knew? Because it would color the way I wrote it. Does that make sense? Totally. I wanted to write it in such a way that either perspective could be the case. And I think as with so many things in life, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I don't want to give anything away for, um, for listeners who haven't read the book. So I guess I'll stop there, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I don't.
0: Okay. That's what I thought you would say. That was my guess. That's what I've heard from a lot of authors whose books do play an ambi- ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised by your answer. I would be surprised if you said, yes, I knew a hundred percent. This is what I had in mind. Mm-hmm. So, and I think you're right. I think when we play around with things that are so big and so much that there isn't really one whole truth that fits evenly on right. the other side. I think it's always kind of that gray area. And that's what makes art and books and storytelling compelling. If it was really clear, it would be science, which is also compelling, but it would just be different. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. Right. I I'm think a, that's really well put.
0: I'm a big fan of science. I don't want anybody to think I'm a huge fan of science. I love science. It's just different, you know, or You're not a climate change denier. No, no. But it's also like <laughs> sports, you know, sports. It's very clear. There's a winner yeah. and there's a loser. And there isn't if you were writing a book about sports, you would know who won the game at the end. You know, you couldn't right. not have that. Right. Um, so that's all is to say I'm excited that I was right. <laughs> You are,
1: you are. Yeah.
0: So I want to talk about research because one of the first notes I took in the book in reading it was research, research, research. And I guess that also plays into keeping yourself organized as a writer with all of the information that you're taking mm. in with the different ages, the locations, where are our characters now? What are they doing? Who is doing, you know, who, who's where, what's happening? Mm-hmm. What technically were you doing to keep yourself organized with all that information and feeding it, it back into your book as fiction?
1: Yeah, that that's a okay. <laughs> totally makes sense. And that's a great question because I I often get the research question, but not so much about like, how did I even like make sense of that amount of volume? Right. Um, so I think a few things. First of all, um, I wrote the book in the order that it appears. And I largely did the research in the order that it appears. So that like taking small bites was the only way I could do a book as ambitious as this in terms of research. And it's the same for the project that I'm working on now. If I think about the whole, I get completely overwhelmed. And so pause
0: you for just one moment and back you up just a hair. Can you tell me how you knew the order or how you knew what what you were even going to research? Like, how did you know yeah. '80s San Francisco or or '2000s wherever? Daniel, where was Daniel? Midwest. Right,
1: right, right. So, with the initial idea, I'm pretty sure that I knew that I wanted Simon to be set in that time period, and then that kind of backs up to okay, when are they growing up? Oh, I see. Um, and then it also shoots us forward to okay know the book ends in 2010 so you know how how old do I want the character in that section to be Um, but I think it's like usually well let me back up to say I have very few ideas that's why I don't write (laughs) short stories really (laughs) like I mean I've had like I've had two novels and I've had like Four ideas and like two of them didn't work and two of them did. So um, I know it's a good sign when an idea hits and I'm taking down pages and pages of notes. Like there's this initial generative vomit, for lack of a more elegant way of putting it, that is actually like really thrilling. I mean this is like the magic of the writing process and the part that feels like true inspiration is like I'm just – I'm taking notes, um, you know, on receipts, um, on the bus, in my phone app, whenever I'm at my computer. And so I think a lot of the, like the barest bones come out in that period of time. Mm -hmm. And then some of the details like Daniel's profession and time period, I didn't know for a while. So I knew that I wanted Um, I knew what the order of the siblings was going to be. And so I knew that I, that he was later on in the book. Um, But I thought that maybe he would be an architect of Jewish museums. I knew I wanted to do something that was like, that would tie him more to religion in that section. And I knew that I knew his personality. I knew that I wanted him to have a job that was kind of control oriented because that's who he is. Um, So it's this, it's this mixture of things that I know at the outset and things that I learn as I go along and the research, it works the same way. So like the first, I mean, I don't even know how long I spent on the prologue alone mm-hmm. because there's so much work to do to understand, um, the sixties in New York at that time and the lower East side, um, all the details of their family identity. Um, they conservative Jewish family. The father owns a tailoring business. So that was inspired by my father's family. My great-grandfather was a tailor and owned his own business. Um, He and my other great-grandparents came through Ellis Island to New York from Eastern Europe, fleeing persecution against the Jews. Uh, And then my grandfather was slated to take over that although I always say that is where the similarities between my grandfather and Simon end. (laughs) Um, But uh, there was just so much work to do for that alone. And so I kind of started researching the next section when I got toward the end of the previous. And sometimes there was more overlap, like Simon and Clara are so intertwined that I needed to know about her act when I was working on Simon's section. So I started researching the magic you know, maybe halfway into all of the research that I was doing about 80s in San Francisco, the AIDS epidemic, the Castro, um, all, all of that. So I think like taking things sequentially and having a structure for the novel in my mind at the outset is really helpful, um, that the structure also came to me very early. This idea of the prologue is where they receive their prophecies. And then the book is in four sections and each section follows one sibling. And that is for the benefit mostly of me. So I don't (laughs) become (laughs) overwhelmed and feel I'm unable to complete whatever I've set out to do.
0: Got it. Well, I'm glad because I'm a chronological person and it was helpful for me as well. So you're not alone. Good, Yeah.
1: My first book skips back and forth in time more. And, um, yeah, this, this is much easier to digest, I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. This is probably a question people ask you all the time and you can tell me no, or you can make up a lie. It doesn't matter. Um, did you have a favorite character in the book?
1: So I always say that I, I hate to admit it because they do all feel like my kids um, mm-hmm. and I love them all. But I I think what you and... so I hope it's okay that I'm like continually referring to the, the podcast oh, of course that you guys did. I did. So what you and Jenna identified about Clara being kind of the... She's the titular character in a certain way. Well, uh-huh. she is. Um, I have a soft spot for her. I mean, I love her... Um, passion and her creativity and her weirdness. And um, I just love the idea of like her with her red hair and her Doc Martens and, you know, putting something up her sleeve. Like I, yeah, I have a soft spot for her, but I, um, I really do love all the siblings, even Daniel. Um, <laughs> so yeah.
0: Do you find that people tell you who their favorite was and do you playing psychologist? Do you feel like that means something about someone? Have you ever noticed a pattern in that?
1: Yeah. Sometimes I've been surprised. I've been like, oh, you're a Varya. I didn't know. But like that tells me a lot about you. Um, so I do think that people just because of the way that it's set up, people tend to, um, latch on to this idea of like, which one do they like best? Which one am I often am asked, which one am I most like? You know, um, I think that's just sort of, it's just like low hanging fruit because there happen to be these four main characters and four sections. Right. Of course.
0: And they're very different. They feel very different too. So it's easy mm-hmm. to kind of yeah. to say I'm this one or I'm that one. Whereas yes. if they were more similar it might be less gratifying to identify ourselves with them. Right, right. Did you have other titles for the book?
1: No, I never did. And mm-hmm. I really struggle with titles. Um, this is the first and only title that I've come up with where I was just like, bam, this is it, and I love it, and I'm done. Um, that feels
0: so good. It felt
1: so good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Never. Hasn't happened before or since.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, at least you had one time. One moment in the sun. Yeah, really. Right. And I know this question authors sometimes roll their eyes at, but I would love to have at least a moment talking about the cover. I know that you don't design your own covers, but I'm just curious what role you did play, if any, or how that process was. Because I do feel like the cover of this book is really just gorgeous and seeing it out in the world before I ever knew anything about the book like a year ago, I was interested in the book because of it. So I'm just curious about that process.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I've been so happy and gratified by the way that people have responded to the cover and all credit goes to Putnam's art team for that. Um, So you're right. People often don't know that authors don't, don't do the covers and have varying levels of say, depending on your publisher. I, I know horror stories where the author didn't get to have any input and the publisher was like, here's your cover. And they're like, I hate it. Um, but that was not the case at all for me. I've had, I have an incredible publisher, um, with Putnam books and, Um, I, as I work on a book, I tend to collect inspiration images for the cover. And so when it's time to start thinking about that cover, when the book is with a publisher, then I send them all those images. um, And, you know, I think they, like the extent to which the book winds up going in that direction is really variable because sometimes the art, team has a totally different vision and that is like works even better. Or sometimes they try something that I really wanted and then the sales reps say, I don't think this is going to do well with customers. So it's quite a long process of getting everyone on the same page from editorial and marketing and publicity and sales reps and the editor and the author, um, And of course, you want this marriage of something that is beautiful to look at and true to the book with something that will make somebody buy the book, you know, because sometimes there might be something that's a really great expression of the book that's not as eye-catching or commercial. So we had a few different concepts. um, But when the tree came up, I think we all felt pretty immediately that that was it, like you know, as you guys identified, tree of life, family tree, there's something kind of magical about all of the seasons being represented in the same image, Mm -hmm. seasons of life, etc. Actually, the very first sample, what's the word I'm looking for? Not sample, the very first um, cover idea that I ever, yeah, basically, like, the first idea that they ever presented was just was a black background. And then just falling leaves Mm. Um, and the leaves were the green ones and it was really beautiful in that, but it was more stark and it was more like somber and contemplative. And so the feedback from certain people at the publishing house was like this direction, but make it warmer. Mm. Um, I did always picture that this book would have a black background with a lot of color on it. So that did come true and also my first book is a black background with color on it. Yeah. So I feel like I have to keep writing books that merit <laughs> black backgrounds <laughs> with lots of color or else like who am I? And I am not consistent. In my writing,
0: <laughs> I love that. Or just get really bossy, be like, "Look, I'm going to write this book, people, but if it's not a black background, there's going to be problems." Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Then, yeah. I, then I just have to change things in the book. That just means right. that like I didn't, I didn't do my job. So right. you do yours, I'll do mine.
0: Right. Oh, I love that. <laughs> okay, we're going to shift slightly to your process as a writer, more generally speaking. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always curious to know where and how do you write? So where are you? What time of day? Are you listening to something? Are you eating a snack or a beverage? Do you light a candle? Kind of set the scene for what Chloe's writing life looks like.
1: Well, actually what I'm doing today is a perfect example of that. Um, I am currently sitting at a cafe, um, and I, well, I have a private room for the purposes of this podcast, which I wouldn't normally demand. I'm not that—I um, <laughs> <laughs> don't have that big of a head, um, but I tend to work um, either at coffee shops or we just. My husband and I just bought a house, and so I've I have the home office for the first time, and it's I feel kind of terrible because. Like I should be working there every day because it's such a luxury, but I'm so used to going Mm. outside. So I'm sort of splitting my time, but, um, I, I like to be in a place where there's, um, other people and kind of subtle peer pressure, other people working, um, but I need absolute silence, so I have earplugs that I use and I am not above going up to The barista and asking if they will please turn the music down, which makes me a favorite at all of the <laughs> coffee shops that I go to um, But I'm like listen if I can hear the music through my Like noise canceling earplugs. Right. It's, it's not loud. me. It's you. Yeah, it's yeah. Too loud. Um, So I mean, that's it. That's it. That You know, it's not that. Um, I mean, well, I guess I should say I'm a big um, coffee ritualized writer. Like I have to have coffee while I write usually, although I've been trying to drink less caffeine and that's been a real challenge. So I've been experimenting with like other drinks I can drink while I write, but never anything alcoholic. I don't know how people are like, yeah, I do my best work when I've had a few beers or like I would not be doing my best work at that point. So like I'm experimenting with some tea, like maybe golden milk latte, something in the Mm. afternoon so that I can try to cut down on my caffeine in the afternoon. But I need that, um, silence, And time of day morning tends to be far better for me. Um, And the other thing I'll say is that in terms of my writing process, when I was working on this book and when I was working on my first book, I was working a day job, as most writers do. Um, And I, I worked in social services And I was able to work Monday through Thursday and then have Friday to Sunday to write. And so those were my heavy-duty writing days. And as I got further along in the book tour, like once the book sold to a publisher and I had deadlines for my edits, I would get up before work to write as well. And the biggest thing that changed in my writing life since The Immortalists sold is that I was able to leave my day job and now be full-time as writer
0: and so that
1: is you know it's a huge privilege um but it also has challenges you know I think when my time was more restricted there's this sense of urgency Mm -hmm. um of like I have Friday through Sunday I, I like I have to I have to get in my hours today um and also so much of the past gosh really two years has been touring and promoting the book. Um, so that's also made my writing life look a little bit different than it did previously. Um, but that's kind of my general, my general process.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you to sort of maybe embarrass yourself, but really just make yourself more human. What is the word or words that you can never spell right on the first try? Oh, that's such a good one. Um, (laughs) Because we all have them. I have like 90.
1: I just, now I wish, okay, like committed. Are there two Ms and two Ts? I think so. That's a a pretty embarrassing one. one.
0: The Ms, mine is recommended. You could, I could put nine Ms in there and still feel unsure. (laughs) Like I have no clue. Recommended is my nightmare.
1: Oh, I, I, oh, liaison. Oh. Which like, why by I typing liaison I was just so say. much that that would even come to mind? <laughs> um, but like, I think there's two I's in there and like, there's also an A. I also frequently have to say to myself, I before E except after C, which yeah. you would think I would be beyond that by now. Um, I also can very easily humanize myself by saying that I have no knowledge of like what a past participle is. Okay. Um, like any of these, like it's all, like it's all in here. Like I know how, if it if it feels off when I write it, but like I could not tell you mm. sentence components, um, which is like really bad. But I've That's talked to other okay. a- writers and they've said the same thing, which makes me feel less embarrassed.
0: Yeah, I think as long as you can identify that something isn't right. But I'm really bad with that stuff. I don't ever remember learning it in school. And a few years ago, I had this idea that I might become a teacher. I obviously didn't, but I had to take some tests and one of them, you had to know all those things like of you know, not ah. just like a noun, but you know, how sentence structure works. And I don't even remember what any of it was called. And I did pass that test, but it was hard. Like I think really for people hard.
1: who are, I think for people who are inclined toward reading and writing, it's intuitive. Right. And so maybe there's an element of like those who can't do teach, like those who can't do need to know the terms, right. but maybe that's just me trying to make myself feel better.
0: Sure. I don't think it matters. I don't think anyone's going to say to you, well, where's the past participle supposed to go? Or, yes. you know, it's just not really, it's really just a school thing. I feel like unless yeah. maybe you're an edit, like a copy editor or a right, yeah, copy editor. Okay. Before we get out of here, I just have a few more questions for you. One of which is, or do you remember or do you get ref- do you get feedback from people that was that's been surprising about this book or maybe pushback to this book that you didn't expect, either good or bad? But what was what is the response that kind of shocked you about the Immortalists?
1: I've been surprised by the fact that overwhelmingly the majority of people love Simon's most and yeah. Simon Most. And I don't know why I thought that like I clearly remember writing the book and thinking like, okay if people can just get through Simon's section, like then they'll, then they'll like stay with it because it really takes off. And, and now I'm so glad that Simon's section is first because that's <laughs> what I hear most. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, I, i I hear from, I think maybe what surprised me is just the amount that I hear from people period. And the, I mean, I get emails, through my website, I get a lot of people reaching out on social media to talk about how the book impacted them. And I think because as you and Jenna were talking about this subject of mortality, and I absolutely agree with you about in the U S especially, we are shit at dealing with mortality and death. Mm -hmm. And so I think the book gives people a way to, um, think about and process some of that either just in their own minds or with, other readers if they're in a book club, or family members, or whatever. Um, And so I think I've been surprised by just how personal and how deep the book hits a lot of people. Like Some of the letters that I get are really intimate and vulnerable and honest, and I'm so moved by that. So I, I'm trying to think of like something negative that surprised me. So I don't sound like I'm just bragging about how much people love my book because I (laughs) like, there are definitely plenty of people who like didn't, it doesn't work for them, you know? Um,
0: that's okay. You don't have to, I, it's just, it was just more that what comes to mind. Some people do depending, I ask that question a lot and some people depending on the book, you know, if, if they're writing a nonfiction book about racism, they might get that might come to mind more easily versus, Mm. you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, I try to leave it open because some people have surprising good and some people have surprising bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Speaking of people who liked your book, what are books that you might recommend to them that are in the same Mm. kind of, they're in conversation with, they don't have to be about mortality. They could be the writing is similar or the idea is similar or it just feels similar or it inspired me while I was writing the book. And I think if, you know, that kind of, yes,
1: I love that question, and I have a bunch of answers. And actually, when people tell me that they love the book, I often tell this to them because I really love to, like, push my favorite books on people and pay it <laughs> forward for other writers, too. <laughs> um, so The Great Believers by Rebecca McKay, have mm-hmm. you read that?
0: I haven't, but I have it. It is
1: incredible. I was hesitant to read it because I just felt like I I didn't want to be – in the AIDS epidemic for at that point, because I had been researching it so much myself, but it's incredible. Um, I can't say enough about that book. Um, uh, the interesting's by Meg Wallitzer, Mm. um, follows a bunch of, uh, kids who meet at an art camp and grow up and become artists and, you know, balance their relationships with their art. Sometimes, you know, well, and sometimes not. And so just the like, I love books that follow characters over many decades. Mm. Um, a little life Mm -hmm. I adored. It's very dark. So many, many trigger warnings. Um, but it also listening
0: to this podcast have heard us talk about a little life. I don't know, maybe on every other episode it comes up. So they know, what did you think? I have a lot of mixed feelings about it, but it Mm. is a really compelling read. I just have I took issue with some of the, some of the violence and Mm. despair, for Mm. so much. And I also have issues with the way that people talk about the book, like that it's this great American gay novel. And I don't think only one of the characters actually identifies as gay, which Mm. I think is problematic. But that's not the book's fault. That's not yeah. That's just the way people talk about things.
1: Yeah, I I hear you. I think that book was really a lightning rod, and that it's it's the kind of book that like if you talk about it with somebody else, you're you're going to ha- like somebody's going to have mixed feelings right, that you're going to totally. be able to talk about.
0: Um, I tell people it's like the Gray's Anatomy of books because I love Grey's Anatomy. It's my favorite television program, but I also recognize that there are issues with Grey's Anatomy. But Mm. if I'm watching an episode, I'm all in. And so when I was reading the book, I was all in. And then when I finished, I was like, I have thoughts now. But a lot of those thoughts didn't come to me in the moment. It came to me being like, okay, you know, Ellen Pompeo, should we really talk about your acting? I don't know. (laughs) know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting because I do feel like... something about a little life I loved so madly that I forgave its flaws. And I distinctly remember saying that exact thing to a friend. Um, So, you know, I love a big character driven epic. Another one is The Heart's Invisible Furies Mm. by John Boyne. Have you read that?
0: I have not read that either.
1: Okay. That's a really fun one. Um, I just reread the goldfinch. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like Donna Tartt is a great example of a person where like, I, there are certain things about her work that make me feel like uncomfortable, or this is, this feels problematic. And yet I also think that the way she tells epic stories is magical and, and pulls you in, in a way that, few writers can. Um, So um, let's see. One more is, um, (laughs) sorry, excuse me. One more um, is um, a reunion of ghosts by Judith Claire Mitchell, which in all honesty is um, she's my, she was my MFA advisor and she's been a mentor and a dear friend to me. And we were working on our books at the same time. And then when we each read each other's book. We were totally weirded out because they're very much sister books. Oh wow! Um, so yeah, that's another one.
0: That's amazing. I love that. Okay, last question for you. I'm trying to decide between two, but I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna throw myself a curveball. Who this book? I see it everywhere. I've seen it in lots of very cool people's hands. Who's the coolest person that's reached out to you or that you've seen has read the book?
1: Okay, well, I have a few. Okay. And this will just tell you about my t- my taste in popular culture. Okay. So, Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper were on a yacht together and did an <laughs> Instagram story with the book By Anderson's Foot. Oh my and God. I lost it. Like I people sent me screenshots of the Instagram story and I like I just like kept watching it over and over just to see this like blurry tree move by the foot. Um and I messaged Andy Cohen and said something like, I'm like losing my shit. I don't know, if, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, you sure I, can. Okay. And he said and he responded and he was like, Well, like and something like Anderson loved it, so I'll read it next. And I was just like, oh I my actually God. no my, this is so embarrassing. I emailed my publicist and I was like, Do you think that if he likes it, I can go and watch what happens live? <laughs> she was like, uh, probably not <laughs> I don't think that's their jam. Um I also am a huge viewer of The Bachelor. I, talk ho- about I was problematic- hoping
0: you were going to say that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Talk about problematic things that I'm still invested in. Um, and it weirdly made its way through various cast members this year. Like Bibiana was reading it and then like Diggy commented and, um, Becca, Becca Kufrin was reading it and I messaged her, it's probably totally creepy that as the author, I'm like, but if it's a famous person, I'm like, the rules are, the bets are off. Like if they, if they respond, that's hilarious and amazing. And if they don't, I'm one of like a million messages that they get every day. Um, and she responded and was so lovely. Um, so yeah, The Bachelor cast members was just hilarious. And like, what are the odds? Um,
0: I, I love that. I was very excited when I saw that too, before, I mean, I saw it long before we ever picked the book for the show and I was like, Oh, <laughs> Viviana's reading it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, my friends, my friends were losing it. They were all sending me screenshots. Um, and then, I mean, having the book chosen by Bellatrix, um, that was just such a huge honor. That's Emma Roberts and Kara Kreese's, right. um, book club. And so that's been a real treat. And I did an event that was kind of co-sponsored with them, um, where my moderator was Nicole Ritchie. And that was um, my LA event for the paperback. And that was just very out of body and fun. And she was so lovely and just like so authentic in talking about how much she enjoyed the book, had great questions.
0: It was really fun. Thank you so much, Chloe. This was amazing.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for choosing the book and for doing such a thoughtful podcast and sharing it with your readers. I'm so grateful.
0: And everybody at home, if you haven't read the book yet, it's The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. It's out in the world. You can get it. It's been out in the world long enough. You can even get it in paperback. If you have read the book and you haven't yet, go back and listen to my conversation with Jenna Ash... I'm going to fuck up her name again. This is unreal. Jenna Ushkowitz. And we talk about the book in great detail. And on that episode, there are spoilers. So if you're you're inclined to read the book, wait until you've finished reading it because I don't want to get yelled at. Chloe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. And we will see you guys in the stack. That does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening to the short stacks, and thank you to Chloe Benjamin for chatting with us. Also, a huge thank you to Katie McKee and the folks over at Putnam Books. Find everything we discussed on today's show by clicking the link in the show notes. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out the website thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com/slash the stacks. And make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.